Yeah, you know, Ron, I never expected to write a novel. I mean, I've been writing all my life. I was a poet when I was a teenager, and when I was in my museum career, I was writing a lot of nonfiction, but fiction was just never on my radar. And then my mom in fall of 2020 got diagnosed with stage four cancer, much like the main character, the grandma in this book. And it was just a wake up call for me that I wanted to change my life and focus on her and focus on family. I rushed to be with her and we were very lucky and blessed to get to be together through her treatment. But it was also a very stressful, painful, hard time. And anybody who's gone through a caregiving experience knows that there are only so many conversations you can have about protein shakes and about have you taken your pills and what time is that appointment? And You know, there's a a poet, Donald Hall, who I love, who talks about this idea that in any relationship, there's a third thing that most of the conversations are about, you know, whether that be an art form you love, whether that be work. And for us, the third thing had become cancer, and, and that was not what we wanted at all. And my mom and I have always loved murder mysteries, and so we started reading and watching some again together. And then one day I just turned to her and I said, you know, what if I tried writing a murder mystery with someone like you as the lead detective? Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We love to celebrate debut novels of writers that we know we can't wait to talk to and share with you. Today, we're going to be chatting with Nina Simon and her highly anticipated debut novel, Mother Daughter Murder Night. We are huge fans already. I am Ron Block. And I am Christy Woodson Harvey. Nina Simon has worn many hats, many impressive hats, I might say. NASA engineer, slam poet, game designer, museum director, and nonprofit CEO. Her work on community participation in museums, libraries, parks, and theaters wow. has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, NPR, and the TEDx stage. Born and raised in Los Angeles, Nina now lives off the grid, so cool, in the Santa Cruz Mountains with her family. Mother Daughter Murder Night is Nina's first novel. She wrote it as a love letter to her mother as a way to entertain, comfort, and connect with her during a major health crisis. We love that, Nina. We do, and I can't wait to hear more about it. So, Nina, it's a huge pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so honored to be with y'all. It's uh, We loved reading the book, and as we said before we came on, we were texting each other a lot <laughs> at different parts and see if the other one had figured out what was going on, but no, <laughs> we didn't. Um, there's tons to talk about, so let's start with you kind of giving us an overview of Mother Daughter Murder Night. Yeah, so Mother Daughter Murder Night is a big-hearted mystery and a family drama. It's about three generations of women. There's a tough, feisty grandma who's sort of the star of the show, Lana Rubicon, her estranged single mother daughter, Beth, 
and her adventurous teenage granddaughter, Jack. And when Lana becomes sick, she has to leave her high-flying life in Los Angeles, her very independent life. She has to move into her daughter Beth's ramshackle cottage in the Monterey Bay on the banks of the Elkhorn Slough, which is a marine preserve. And she is not happy about being in bed. She is not happy about losing her life and her job and her freedom and her power. And then one night she sees something a little mysterious out in the Marine Preserve. And that weekend, her granddaughter, Jack, who's a kayak tour guide, comes upon a dead body in the slough. And the story goes on from there. It really becomes this amateur sleuth detective story about these three generations of women working together to find the murderer and also working together to renegotiate what kind of family love relationship they can have as three very strong, very independent, and very different women. Mm. I love that. Well, there's so much, you know, beneath the surface of this book, and it's so heartfelt and fun. But um, I was going to ask you what it's really about, which we always do on Friends of Fiction, but you kind of just told us, um, you know, that there's three generations of women and them coming together and working, and we're going to talk more about them because they were all fascinating in their own right. And man, I just loved them. Yeah. And, you know, and when I was writing it, there was sort of this question of, is this a murder mystery? Is this a family drama? And of course, the answer is yes. And um, But I do think that, right, but the heart of it, I think, is about love, which is a funny thing to say about a book that is also about murder. But, you know, I wrote this book as an expression of love for my own mom. And I think that there is a lot um, of love inside the book between the generations of women and also love for the natural world. Um, and and I, I think that for me as a reader, um, I really gravitate towards mysteries that um, bring not necessarily a perfect wrapped up in a bow solution, but they bring comfort, they bring certainty. And I think that to me, a great murder mystery is one where at first, you know, there is a rift caused by this crime, but then the detective thoughtfully, patiently, and to some extent lovingly, you know, comes to the conclusion that can right um, the, you know, the human tide again. Mm, so well said. That's right. It's all that, st- all that and more. So we, we hear love an origin story, and uh, I've read a little bit about this, but tell us how the idea to write the book first came to you. Yeah, you know, Ron, I never expected to write a novel. I mean, I've been writing all my life. I was a poet when I was a teenager, and um, when I was in my museum career, I was writing a lot of nonfiction, but fiction was just never on my radar. And then um, my mom in fall of 2020 got diagnosed with stage four cancer, much like the main character, the grandma in this book. And it was just a wake-up call for me that I wanted to change my life and focus on her and focus on family. I rushed to be with her and we were very lucky and blessed to get to be together through her treatment. But it was also a very stressful, painful, hard time. And anybody who's gone through a caregiving experience knows that there are only so many conversations you can have about protein shakes and about, (laughs) have you taken your pills and what time is that appointment? And, um, You know, there's a a poet, Donald Hall, who I love, who talks about this idea that in any relationship, there's a third thing that most of the conversations are about, you know, whether that be an art form you love, whether that be work. And for us, the third thing had become cancer, and and that was not what we wanted at all. And um, 
my mom and I have always loved murder mysteries. And so we started reading and watching some again together. And then one day I just turned to her and I said, you know, what if I tried writing a murder mystery with someone like you as the lead detective? And at first, I would not say I expected, certainly never expected to publish a book that I would be talking to you today. Um, but all I expected at that point, it was kind of like saying, what if we planned a safari or what if we, you know, imagined sailing around the world? It was just trying to replace cancer as the center of our conversations with something new, a new third thing, you know, this escape into something that was joyful, something we chose instead of something that was thrust upon us. And so writing the book was really this very intimate practice where, you know, I would sit on my mom's bed and I would type while she was sleeping. And then when she woke up, I'd slide her the laptop and she would read and then I'd go make food and then we'd argue about what had happened and what should happen next. And it just um, allowed us to continue to have this very deep, intimate time together, but to have it be surrounding something that brought us joy um, as well as the hard things, obviously, that we were going through as well. And I guess I should I should have said this at the beginning, but my mom is actually doing quite well now. Um, she's been really um, a, a champ and uh, so a superhero. I didn't want to um, ask yeah. you, so I'm really yeah, glad. Yeah. No, I realized I should have said that first. No, she'll be with me um, for a lot of the events. And, and you know, as she said to me just the other day, you know, um, this is like the good, the you know, finally something good that came out of cancer. And I think that every step of this journey whether it was coming up with the characters together, whether it was her being the first reader, whether it was me calling her when we got, you know, a publisher. Um, it has just been um, a project that has brought joy and fun and comfort and love into our life during a really hard time. Well, we loved the dedication to her. And of course, you should the video of you showing her the book on Instagram. And I do have to say, I think it is notable and you know, probably a little bit like fortuitous that Kristen Hanna started writing with her mom and her mom mm, was sick. Mm, so wow. I feel like this is, this is a good start, right? Okay. So we are so drawn into these three strong female characters definitely. and they have so much in common, but they're also definitely individuals too. So we'd love to know a little bit more about um, how you developed them and told their relationship through this story. Sure. And then uh, I'll, I'll ask you afterwards, just so you can think about it. If, uh, if you have one that you really identified with, I'm always so curious to hear who, okay, which great. Rubicon woman really worked for them. Yeah, um, yeah. So I'm from a family of really strong, tough women. Um, you know, at the time actually that my mom got sick, my mom, my sister, and I were all CEOs of different organizations. And so I've just grown up in a world of, um, a lot of, uh, single moms, a lot of women who are fighting to, um, be heard and be seen in business and in work and in life. Um, and I think that um, there are a lot of books about groups of women where there's sort of a queen bee and a lot of followers. And that's just not the kind of relationships that I have with other women in my life. I feel like in my life, I'm um, spending time with women who are fiercely independent, who are crafting their own path, and then who are negotiating with each other how they're going to love and support each other as they as they move forward. And so, you know, in this story, you have these three generations of women. Um, you know, in a novel, you've got to have juicy conflict. So unlike my family, where everybody's really close, you know, in this case, Lana, the grandma, and Beth, the mom, are not close. And in fact, you know, 
Beth um, left Los Angeles and left the control of her mother's world um, when she was a teenager. And so um, a lot of the book is about the conflict between them as two strong women who maybe don't fully in the beginning they see each other's strength maybe, but they don't respect it. They don't admire it. They don't know how to um, be caring towards each other. And I think that Lana is very much the businesswoman who made it in a man's world, who as an older woman is fiercely um, trying to continue to have power and agency, even as the world wants to invisibilize her. Beth is very different. Beth is a nurse. Beth is a caregiver. Beth has chosen to live in nature and to have what Lana sees as a very small life, but what Beth sees as a life that is, you know, rich with um, the mystery and the beauty of this marine preserve, which with the depth of her relationship with her own daughter. Um, and I think that, you know, this idea of independence versus interdependence is a big one in this book. You know, um, can you, I think Lana starts out feeling like relying on anybody is a sign of weakness. And so of course, when she gets sick, she is not just um, uncomfortable, but she's terrified um, because it threatens her own sense of self. So Lana and Beth are, you know, the adults in the story. And then you have Jack, the granddaughter who's 15, Jack is independent and strong in her own way. She's incredibly adventurous. Um, she is grappling with having a single parent, um, being a biracial teenager, but really somebody who's in love with nature and who's in a small town and is starting to feel that smallness and starting to want a bigger world, starting to want to go beyond the marine preserve into the bigger ocean of possibilities. And so, you know, a lot of this book is about these three women who each bring strengths um, to their relationships and to their sleuthing, um, and really how coming together to solve this murder and to protect each other um, triggers and brings out the best in each of them so that they can start to live together and love each other as a family as well. I love that. You know, I thought it was interesting too. I loved, um, yeah, I live in North Carolina on the coast, and I loved Jack and how. I felt like her life sort of reminds me of my son's only 11, but kind of what I mm. hope his gets to be like soon. Yes. It is a little bit different. You know, you don't necessarily think of like 15 year olds leading kayaking tours, but these kids, I mean, they, they understand this world that they're a part of in a way that I will never understand. Like that water is like in his veins. Like he can be like, yes. Oh, well the tide is blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, mm. what? Like he just knows it because he lives on it, you know? And yeah. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure, sure. And like the moon and the birds and the, you know, I don't know all these things. Um, so that was really fascinating to me. But I'm not going to tell you which woman that I related to most because oh. my question after Ron's next one, I didn't realize it until you were talking, but it's going to answer it. Okay. Okay. Ron, okay. Oh, <laughs> but I want to know, Nina, which one was, was yeah. the one you most related yeah. to? Oh, I'm a recovering Lana for sure. You know, I mean, um, and actually in that video Christy referenced on Instagram, you know, we joked about the fact that um, all the good parts of Lana are based on my mom and all the bad parts are based on me, you know, and I think that <laughs> Lana is this very audacious, very independent, um, very self-sufficient, but also somewhat of a selfish person. And I think that um, and somebody who really values external achievement. And I think that a lot of yeah. the process of writing this book, of course, was at a time when I 
put took off my CEO hat to become a caregiver for my own family. And a <laughs> lot of writing this book was about me learning to love um, Beth and learning to love the Beth in me. Because I think yeah. that I, like Lana, started out seeing Beth as noble, seeing Beth as strong abstractly, but it was only over many drafts that I got to really love and admire and deeply respect this person who had made a choice that was about interdependence instead of about independence, which is just not not the way I'm wired. And then, you know, Christy, it's funny. I also, I have a 10-year-old daughter um, and she was about seven when I started writing this book. And similarly, she's a huge outdoor adventurer. I hope she grows up to be like Jack. And when I told her that, she's like, I'm already like that. I, you know, I know what all the plants are. I go hiking. I bike to school by myself. And she actually did a lot of the research with me. She would like perch on the front of my paddle board. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have this little kid and we're going through the slough and the otters and the pelicans. And then she would, it was so beautiful beautiful and cute. And then she would just like point out the, you know, uh, to the bank and she'd be like, look, mom, like, look at that abandoned shack. Like you should kill somebody there, you know? And it was both like very cute and very creepy. And um, a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, that is so it. fun. I mean, what about you, Ron? Do you have, do you have a, one of the Rubicons I, you identify I, I with? I do. I do. I, I actually think I'm more of a Beth because I mm -hmm. kind of, while I still got along with my family, where I came from isn't what I wanted. And so mm -hmm. when I had children, things we kind of moved away and kind of formed our own uh, our own little world so it, mm -hmm. um i love that yeah a beth i'm a beth <laughs> nice but yeah, i, I want to expand a little bit you touched on it a little bit but i really want to talk about the setting because one of the mm. transformative things of this book and right from the first page is you talk took us right there you took us mm -hmm. to the slough you took us to the yard um can you talk more about about well, I well I didn't know what a slew was I never heard of it so yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's well, the, talk you know, about the setting yeah so uh, for the last sixteen years I've been living in the Santa Cruz Mountains and you know I live off the grid in a redwood forest and being close to nature is really important to me and as you can imagine you know when my mom got sick really the two things I escaped into, one was reading and writing and the other was nature. So when I was down in Los Angeles with my mom, I was running in the Topanga Hills and swimming in the ocean. And then when I'd come home to Santa Cruz, I'd go hike in the mountains, but I also found myself gravitating towards Elkhorn Slough, which is this um, beautiful marine preserve. It's the second biggest marine preserve in California after the San Francisco Bay. Unbelievable wetlands with, you know, I mentioned earlier, but pelicans, egrets, otters, harbor seals. And one of the things that's so unusual about it is that it is extraordinary as a wild place, but it is surrounded and crossed by human and urban life in so many ways. So the freeway runs through it. There's a power plant right there. There's a railroad there. There you know, are farms and abandoned dairies and all different kinds of business and a marina that's there. And so I really like that. And I feel like for fiction and for mysteries in particular, you want a setting that has conflict inherent in it. And I feel like any place that where you're on the borders, the borders of, you know, wilderness and um, urbanity, the borders of agriculture and business, you know, there's going to be conflict at those borders, even if just the conflict between, you know, birds and fish. Um, and so I think that it created 
a sense of beauty, but also of violence. You know, there are old shark hunting blinds in Elkhorn Slough because a hundred years ago you could go there and hunt sharks with spears. I mean, so it, it just had <laughs> some violence built into it. Um, but it also for me just became a place of peace and solace when I was dealing with some hard times. And I, you know, took up paddleboarding during the pandemic. I feel like a lot of people did. And um, yeah. I just love going out there. And um, I also like the idea of, for my first novel, setting it somewhere I knew well, but not right in my backyard. Instead, doing it, you know, 30 minutes down the road. Um, it allowed me to get deep into the research without feeling like I was, um, you know, struggling with boundaries about my own life and about the story. Makes total sense. And you just tied it together for me because I just felt there was something between the setting and the mystery. And and, and now you've kind of tied it together with the conflict mm -hmm. of the violence there. So I, and, and the piece. So it's all there. And that's in the prologue, right? And I mean, it, it is a, it's a slow burn traditional mystery. And so I think that one of the things I had to learn as a writer is, you know, if your dead body's not coming on the first page, how do you start to create this sense that there is a dead body coming, that there is um, some violence around you, even if it's not, you know, action scenes and uh, bodies hitting the floor? Right. <laughs> well, and the slew does have this, like, this feeling of kind of foreboding about it. I mean, mm -hmm, even... Mm -hmm. You know, even with the beauty, even with that, you know, there is kind of this sense of, well, I mean, best first line ever. I mean, best first <laughs> line. I'm sorry. This was, I'm going off script here. But, like, Beth knew she couldn't leave for work until she dealt with the dead body on the beach. I mean, boom. hello. It's <laughs> so good. It's so good. Boom. You're right there. So right away, like, you know, there's like a little, even though. You know, that's not exactly spoiler. What it's a seal. To, yeah, 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 yeah. But it just, yep. you know, it's 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 such a great it's such a great start. And you're right that you know I was just out at the slough the other day with my best friend, and you know we're having a peaceful, wonderful time. But then you're seeing these huge birds come down and just swoop fish out, you know, and and boom, that's death. And you know we we ended up down this little agricultural furrow, and you know she fell in and like was suddenly in mud up to her waist. You know we had to go <laughs> against the tide at one part. There are, I think, one of the interesting things about being in nature is that you're always on the precipice of danger if you're really in a wild place. And I think right. that um, even when you feel like you're doing something so calm and so relaxing, um, you know, th there's a lot of danger there. And, and obviously that's ripe for a murder mystery. It's so true. It's so true. Okay. So back to the character that I obviously related to most, because I did not even notice this. So I love this book and, you know, you're reading and you're caught up in these women's lives and you're caught up in the mystery, but then there are these lines that yes. you have in there that you sprinkle in that just make you is the reader like stop and be like, wow, that is so true. So I had to read you a few of my favorites and I did not realize they are all either something that Lana is thinking or that she has yeah. told another character, which is hilarious. Yeah. So this one I'm kind of paraphrasing, but I love this one. Lana found the MRI to be oddly relaxing. This must be what being dead was like. No one asking her for anything. I read that and I was like, oh my God, yes. No one asking you for anything. Yes. Okay. And then, and then you know, she's watching this creepy man like do something like odd and weird and she knows it's weird it's the middle of the night it nothing could be more unpleasant like he's like in mud and he's wet and the and, and she says 
that was the life she was meant to live, to be the doer, not the watcher. And then I love this one. Most men find strong women exhausting, especially when they're married to them. And this is my favorite. Jack's grandma had told her it was always good to give men simple instructions in complicated situations. <laughs> that last line is the line that has been most texted to me by my friends yes. when they're reading. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's, Spot on. It's so good. It's so good. So I'm realizing these are all on a line. So obviously nice. that must be the one who I relate yeah, to the most. Yeah, but yeah. you did such a good job of taking moments that are difficult or scary or stressful. And you just added such levity with these just little lines that are like just true and a little bit funny and, you know, all of that. So I'm just wondering, like, did you think about this or are you just writing and it just pops out? I mean, I definitely got more and more into it as I went. And some of them, not the ones you read, but some of them did come directly from my mom. Like, um, you mm. know, there's one right in the beginning when she when she first has to go to the hospital where it says, even lying on, a, lying on a gurney, Lana knew she looked worth saving. And my mom, when we would go to the hospital, when she was incredibly sick, she was she really cared about what she looked like. And she said, they, you know, I... I and it was rooted in this fact of she wanted the doctors to think she was worth saving. She said that. And like, what a sad thing to say in some ways to feel that stress when you're in this moment of health crisis. But also like, you know, as you're saying, there is levity in it. And so I think that there were there are a lot of, you know, uh, what do they say? Like comedy is tragedy plus time. And I think that so there was humor in um, processing some of what we were going through. And then yeah. absolutely, as I kept writing, I just was having so much fun with this character and her outrageousness that then some of these lines I really worked at for a long time. Some of them just came out and then sometimes I'd be like, ooh, I know there's a point for Alana line right here. And I would go back again and again until I um, was able to get it right. And I actually, you know, one of the books that is referenced in this book that I loved and that I used as sort of a Lana inspiration is this weird business memoir called um, They Can Kill You, But They Can't Eat You. It's by a woman named Dawn Steele. And she was the first woman to run a major Hollywood studio. And unfortunately, she's passed on now, but she has the most bananas memoir. And the cover is like giant shoulder pad. It, it, it's everything you expect from a woman who made it in the 80s and 90s. And I just highly recommend it if you are looking for a real life Lana out there. Um, Dawn Steele um, was a, one of my big inspirations for the more outrageous components. That's awesome. And I've written it down. So it's good. Okay. So especially in the case of, you know, the advice from Lana, you know, was any of, I mean, I guess you sort of covered this, but, but some of this really was based on advice from your own family members and your own mother and things that were kind of happening while you were writing. Yeah. And I wouldn't say, I mean, Lana has a very extreme view, particularly about gender sure. and about, yeah. um, you know, I think that when I was thinking about for an amateur sleuth, um, they need a superpower that can help them, you know, be a strong detective, even if it's an unorthodox detecting superpower. And I decided that Lana's superpower was really rooted in her business background and frankly, in her ability to manipulate people and to manipulate men in particular. And so I think that, and, and as you read in the book, it's not like she's, you know, a femme fatale, but she really um, has become an expert student through her business career in real estate in Los Angeles at figuring out 
how to both make herself seen, but also how to get men to, you know, do what she needs them to do so that she can be effective. And so I think, you know, I grew up around my mom and a lot of her friends who were single women in Los Angeles, single Jewish women trying hard to build careers um, and, and trying hard to provide for their families. And I think that my mom is somebody who did not expect ever to become a, a businesswoman or a CEO. But when my parents got divorced, um, she jumped into action. She said, you know, I've got to provide for my two girls and I am going to do whatever I need to do to do that. And definitely my childhood, my strong childhood memory is, you know, every Mon Monday through Friday, my mom, you know, leaving the house at seven in the morning in her power suit and her high heels and getting home at 730 at night and pouring a big glass of white wine and, um, and having maybe a bagel or a salad. And I think that she was, but she was doing that for us, for me and my sister. And I think that is a, a big difference, right? Is that Lana is somebody for whom that is a world in which she's not just uh, thrust into by circumstances by her own divorce, but where she really thrives and finds power and loves to be. And I think that um, my own mom's experience with it was much more conflicted because she really um, cared most about, you know, being able to care for her family. And I think that, um, yeah, so I, I, but I guess, yes, I was in, I spent a lot of time around single women um, who, you know, were not always treated very well by men and who were really trying to, to make their own way. And I think that that drove into these lines and Lana's outlook. And, um, you know, every amateur detective needs their own superpower. Yeah. I love that. And Lana, you know, she's not going to beat guys up in an alley, you know, and, and yeah. she's not necessarily, you know, she's not going to sit down and, uh, you know, she's not going to hack into a computer. Right. So this is what she can do is, um, really push her way into places where she's not wanted and, get people to tell her what she needs to know. That's great. Now, does your mother feel like um, that everybody's going to think she's just like Lana? Oh, you know, it's so funny. My mom has been so protective of Lana the whole through the whole writing time. You know, I like to say my mom was both the best and worst first reader because the best in that, A, she read everything. She read it the minute I gave it to her, and she always encouraged me to keep going. But be the only thing she really had a lot of feedback on were like small um, spelling errors and, you know, things like, oh, you know, this jacket is blue. I think it should be red. And the other thing she really cared about was Lana. And, you know, there are some harsh moments in this book, particularly looking back on Lana and Beth's relationship. And I went through a lot of drafts of some of that um, rooted in my mom saying to me, you know, people are not going to, uh, or not, she would not say people aren't going to like Lana. Um, if you keep this in, she'd say people are going to think I'm a, you know, a yeah. word that, you know, rhymes with pitch. And, um, <laughs> and so it's been so funny now that there have been, and, and I think that we both had a lot of, any writer has a lot of nervousness when a book's coming out, especially your first book. And I think my mom also had nervousness, but as we've been talking to early readers, we just keep hearing from people who love Lana. And I think that um, that's made her, you know, feel less worried about it. And I think I was able to write this character with love because she's in me, she's in my mom, she's in the women I admire. And I think there's a way to write a character like this um, without that love, but 
you know, that's not this story and this character in this book. Right. The love comes right through. So I want to switch it up just a little bit. Um, And we've talked about the setting. We've talked about the characters. But I want to talk about you, how you built a mystery into this. Because Mm. let me tell you, I thought I had this figured out 18,000 different times. And uh, the red herrings that you would drop and these little breadcrumbs just kept leading me down these paths and they didn't. So um, as debut novelist, you had it's, it's just amazing how you pulled this off. How did you get into it? How did you do it? Oh, thank you. Well, um, well, A, you know, I grew up reading murder mysteries. I've been reading murder mysteries all my life. And and even during the pandemic and during this tough time with my mom, it was really the genre I came back to deeply. And, um, you know, this is a place where I think having a very eclectic professional background helped me because I really felt sometimes like I was using my engineer brain because I would take mysteries I loved and I would literally deconstruct, okay, when did they introduce the suspects? Um, how did, what were the points of misdirection that got me? And I, I did this with a couple of Louise Penny books. I did it with a few different books, just sort of looking at how does this tick? How does this work? And then I'll also say though, that my first draft, I'd figured out some basic things. You know, you need three to five suspects. Um, you need them to each have a legitimate motive. Um, you need a separate, uh, one of the great, I, I read this book called How to Write a damn good mystery, something like that. Um, and, uh, by, by James Frey, but not the James Frey who was the (laughs) novelist. And, um, he talked about this idea that you, um, that a mystery is the only genre where the author and the reader are, are on opposite sides of the playing field in a competition to get to the end because the reader wants to figure it out before the end. The author wants to keep you guessing, but you also, it was really important to me to write a fair play mystery where it wasn't like there would be some secret clue or some distant Siamese twin or something. I guess you can't have a distant Siamese twin. Uh, let's erase that, Alan. Uh, you know, uh, um, I, I wanted to write a fair play mystery, not something where there was some hidden clue or some, you know, a twin in a foreign country or something who would swoop in at the last moment. And so there were some things I was able to get right in that first draft, but there was a lot I learned from my agent and then my editor to make the mystery stronger. So I learned to really make the characters more layered. The the murderer in my first draft um, was much more cartoonishly villainous. And actually, many of the characters were more cartoonish um, in my first draft. Um, Another thing I learned from my agent that was so helpful, she said, you know, You've introduced all these suspects, um, but then you're just sort of dropping them for long periods of time until, you know, Lana shows up at their doorstep. And she said, you know, think about it like a lazy Susan and that you have to keep spinning. And each clue that invalidates one person as a suspect should send the detectives to the next one. You know, so I feel like I got such an education from my agent and my editor. You know, I do not have in English or literature or creative writing background. I've never taken a course in this kind of thing. Um, So I feel so lucky that I was able to learn from the process, from the books I love, from my beta readers. But then I also learned a lot about how to bring depth and nuance to the mystery from my agent and from my editor at William Morrow as well. Mm, That's awesome. That's amazing. I want to just say that I loved, um, there were certain things in the early parts of the book. I said, this is going to mean something. But then Mm. as I got along in the book, I was like, oh, she hasn't solved this yet. But of course, then you did. So it's like, (laughs) but it was great that I kept it all in my head. And I was like, okay, I got to know about this. Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, people, some writers talk about like, oh, the characters went places I didn't expect them to go. 
I think in a mystery, that's a little harder to be true because you do really need to make sure. I mean, the timelines I have for all these characters and where they were were Mm -hmm. very extensive. But what did happen to what you're saying, Ron, is there were sometimes things I wrote just as sort of a setting piece that suddenly later I realized were instrumental to the mystery or I wove them. And and I didn't. And so there was an alchemy of things that I didn't know were going to be symbolic or important or things that weren't intended to be clues or red herrings coming around and becoming so, even though originally they had just been incidental to that character or to that setting. Mm. I love it. That's incredible. Well, so we have to ask you before we let you go, because I know we're recording a little bit before this book comes out, but I know this is a question that you're going to get a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, any chance we're going to see a sequel starring these unforgettable sleuths? You know, I think one of the things I've been learning from this process is honestly, that's really up to readers to a large extent. And I think that I'm really personally of two minds about it. On the one hand, I would love to write more with these women. I have more ideas about mysteries I'd love for them to solve. On the other hand, you know, I wrote this book for a very idiosyncratic reason, and it's my first novel. And I think that, as you can maybe hear, I'm somebody who loves to learn and grow and challenge myself and explore new things. And so there are so many different stories that I want to write. There are, so, I think that I'm going to stay in the world of the intersection between strong women and crime. But I think that, you know, I'm interested in women committing crimes as well as solving them. You know, I'm interested in women in different wild worlds um, and women who are, you know, carving their own path um, in many different scenarios. And so I think that um, we'll see, you know, how much readers fall in love with these women um, and whether that's the next direction I want to go or another place. But I think that I'm hopeful that there are many books and many strong women and many dead bodies in my future. (laughs) Well, we know that there will be. And we have so enjoyed having you, Nina. Thank you for sharing your time with us today. This is great. Thank you. Okay. Before we let you go, tell our listeners where they can connect with you online and learn more about your work and your tour. Great. Um, Yeah. So I love interacting with people, especially since this is my first novel. I love hearing from you if you're reading this book and enjoying it. Um, You can find me online at ninaksimon.com. And I'm also Nina K. Simon is my handle on all the different social media. I'm most active these days on Instagram, but I'm also on threads, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, happy to connect with you wherever it's best for you. And most of all, I just hope that you have a wonderful time with the Rubicon women and mother daughter murder night and that you let me know what you think. Good. I think, I think it's going to be a big hit. People are going to love it. Oh yeah. So thank you you again for joining us and a huge thank you to our listeners. We're grateful to you each and every week. Mother Daughter Murder Night is going to be on your wish list for sure. And you can get a copy at our Friends in Fiction bookshop.org page for a discount while also helping your favorite indie bookstore. We hope you tune in next week for another all new episode. Thank you. And be sure to share with a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
We are so glad you're here.